Your notes and information right here, right now. Welcome to Just Twerts, your weekly helper for anything twerts related. I'm your host, Brent Lian. Today we'll have defenses to negligence. I'm your host Brent. Today our topic is defenses to negligence. I'm here with Giacomo and Maxine. It's Hi, nice Brent. to have you guys over here. Okay, shall we start with Valenti? So Valenti means one who consents does not suffer any injury. Mm -hmm. But the idea of consent in the context of a defense to negligence is quite different to that in intentional torts. That's right. When we talk about Valenti in the context of a defense to negligence, we talk about it as you voluntarily assume the risk. So if you, if the plaintiff has voluntarily assumed the actual risk which has caused their damage, mm. then this will operate as a complete defense. Can you give an example? Some scenario in which Valenti might possibly operate? The classic example would be in sports or in recreational activities. So maybe if you're playing a game of football, um, you would consent to a tackle even if you get injured in that tackle. But is that negligence or is that trespass? <laughs> <laughs> I think that would that would depend to a certain degree on the actions of the, the tackler in this particular example. Right. Uh, and uh, perhaps on their mindset uh, when they're going in for that action. It depends on, as Giacomo said, exactly the nature of the injury. Mm -hmm. So if you're a spectator at a sports game and you're sitting there on a seat and a ball flies over and hits you, that's a fairly foreseeable risk of harm yeah. at a sports injury. You can't necessarily expect for that not to happen. Whereas say you were at a sports game and your seat broke beneath you, unfortunately, that would not be a foreseeable risk of harm and that would be negligence on the part of the operators of the stadium. I think it's worth pointing out that in common law, Valenti is a complete defense. So if you can prove Valenti, then, then the plaintiff gets nothing, right? Yes. Which is unfortunate, I think. Yeah, it's like you said, plaintiff has to foresee the exact type of the actual risk in order to qualify for Valenti. If he or she just foresees the kind of risk that's uh, likely to happen, but is not the actual risk, which materialized, then I don't think it's possible to make out a defense on Valenti. There's a really interesting case about water skiing. Roots and Shelton. Roots yeah. and Shelton. Can you guys like just briefly walk us through the case? So that was a case where uh, there was these individuals water skiing in Dubbo. Uh, and what happened was one of the water skiers, they, they skied a bit far from where, where they usually would in line with the boat that was towing them. But at the same time, that boat that was towing them was found to have been negligently driving because it was driving very close to another boat that was stable in the water and what happened was the uh, the skier hit that boat and suffered serious injuries because they couldn't see where they were going because they were blinded by the spray. Ultimately the question for the court was whether the risk of being blinded by the spray and of hitting other objects in the water was so obvious or so reasonably to be expected that it would be voluntarily accepted because it's a sport or a pastime event and the court said that no, the, the driver actually acted in a way that made it so that that risk was not obvious or foreseeable to that person who was injured. Right. It was mentioned in one of the papers written by uh, Professor Robert McDonald 
that it's usually harder to foresee negligence in another person who is acting in a vague or unpredictable manner. I think that's relevant for the case that we just discussed, right? Absolutely. Okay, so how about the possible impact of the legislation like the CLA? What, what do some of the provisions say with Valenti? One of those risks that any plaintiff will be taken to have voluntarily assumed is an obvious risk. Mm. And this is defined in the Civil Liability Act. Obvious risks are those that would have been obvious to a reasonable person in the position of that person. So they include risks that are patent or a matter of common knowledge. And it can get a bit tricky because it can be an obvious risk even if it's not prominent or say physically observable. And as a plaintiff, you are presumed to have been aware of that obvious risk. So relating to your early example about the audience in a sport stadium, would you say that being hit by the ball is an obvious risk? Yes. Right. What's the risk that's not foreseeable, like the seat breaking maybe? So you're taking the plaintiff as in, it, let, let's say if the person wants to file a suit, you're taking it as in he or she might have consented to the ball being thrown at his or her face, but probably not to the seat breaking. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> Right, okay, that makes a lot of sense. All right, any other provisions aside from the one about obvious risk? Well, the other key provision in relation to obvious risk mm. is in relation to warning. So the defendant does not owe, as part of their duty of care, they're not obliged to warn of an obvious risk to the plaintiff. What if they actually warned? So if you do warn, uh, if as a defendant you warn the plaintiff of a risk, mm -hmm. you can't be held liable that risk materializes and that's also under the Civil Liability Act and that's also really relevant to the examples we were talking about earlier in the case of a sports game right, right. or another say recreational activity like skiing. So I think the CLA, the provisions that we just mentioned from the CLA will be quite useful when you discuss a problem question which relates to sports activity or recreational activity that might be dangerous that's a good time to bring out those provisions and discuss them, right? Definitely. All right, anything to add with Lenti? Uh, there are a couple of other interesting provisions to note in the legislation. One is also in the Civil Liability Act in Section 5i, um, the inherent risk, which is a little bit different from the obvious risk. Inherent risk is something that cannot ever be avoided by the exercise of reasonable care and skill, and so that sets a much higher bar than obvious risk. And in those cases, there's uh, no liability whatsoever because it would be unjust for the defendant to be held liable. And the other interesting section is section 140 of the Motor Accidents Compensation Act, which states that for motor accidents, Valenti as a defence is not actually available, with the exception of motor racing, because that's actually a sport in itself. <laughs> Alright, I think we're done with this section. We'll be talking about contributory negligence. A case that was quite interesting will be <laughs> Kenderson and Commissioner of Railway. So if it's a railway case, you know something gruesome must have happened. So what's, what's like the facts of that case, very briefly? So essentially what happened in that case is there was a man and his 14-year-old son at Casino Railway Station up on the north, north end of New South Wales. And the man carried his friend's luggage into the train, but before he could get off, the train started moving. And there wasn't a warning about this. And the next station was 100 kilometres away, and he obviously didn't want to leave his son on the platform. Mm. So he decides to try and get off the train as it begins to move. He tries to jump off while holding the side of the train because the speed of the train was too fast to just jump off verbatim. But 
as he does this, he starts running with the train, holding the train, trying to steady himself before he lets go of the train and is safely on the platform. But he was he's unable to do this. The train's speeding up, obviously, and he just falls between the gaps between the platform and the train and suffers quite serious injury. Did, did he break his leg? I believe he did. Yeah. <laughs> Reasonably foreseeable. <laughs> he broke his leg. Yeah, okay, so what's the, um, what did the court say regarding this case? What principle did they come up with? The ultimate uh, question and principle that they came up with in the case is whether or not the plaintiff took reasonable care for their own safety, mm -hmm. and that's how you determine whether there was contributory negligence or not. Uh, and that's a question, if there is a jury, that's a question for the jury to decide. And does that standard depend on the age and possibly the mental state of the uh, plaintiff? So, not always. As a general rule, it is the reasonable person in the position of the plaintiff. Mm -hmm. However, the rules are slightly different when it comes to children. And in the case of Doubleday and Kelly, there was a seven-year-old kid who was on their friend's trampoline and they were wearing roller skates. Whilst on the trampoline, uh, they fell off and were injured. And the court held that the standard of care should have been determined by reference to a reasonable seven-year-old child. And in that instance, it's necessary to take into account the relevant age of the plaintiff. Yeah, this makes me wonder how possible it is for those judge who are like 40, maybe 50, to think about themselves as being placed in the position of a seven-year-old kid. <laughs> it must be quite funny to see them formulate all of the, try to put themselves in the shoes of kids. Um, yes, that was a nice case on the standards involved with kids. Another case that I want to mention is McCallum Watson. I think we've talked about this uh, in one of the previous episodes. I don't remember exactly which one, but that was a case of two kids just throwing darts, and one dart got deflected on a tree, hit the other kid in the eye. I think there was eventually quite serious eye injury. And yeah, it was quite similar to the case that you mentioned, Double Day and Kelly. In that case, it was also mentioned that the standard for kids will be lower than that of a reasonable person. So you, will, you would alter your standard of a reasonable person depending on the age of the plaintiff. That's so There's not many cases in this area. <laughs> because even, even like that question there in Caterson that was created, that's essentially just been codified oh, yeah, yeah. in the Civil Liability Act. I think definitely mention, I know when I did it, when it was taught, they spent ages looking at it being a full defence. Mm. They spent half a lecture on that and they're yeah. like, oh wait, it's not full yeah, defence, okay, okay, it's apportionment. Exactly. And you're like, well, why have we spent an hour? <laughs> yeah, should we talk about like just briefly the development of... Uh, contributory negligence. Like in, in common law, it used to be a complete defense, yeah. but now it's becoming sort of this damage reduction, apportionment, um, like whatever you call it. So at the very start, if you can prove contributory negligence, what can you get as a plaintiff? Nothing, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> the plaintiff really um, loses in that sense, but... So it's all or nothing? All or nothing, yeah. But since then, we have what's called apportionment legislation. Um, and that was introduced by the 1965 Law Reform Miscellaneous Provisions Act. And that said, you can assess the plaintiff's contributory <laughs> negligence as a percentage. Right. Uh, so plaintiff contributed to, say, 30% of their injury, and the defendant contributed to 70%. The only instance where the all-or-nothing rule can stand is if the court deems it to be just and equitable to do so. I think that's section 9, subsection 1 of the Law Reform Miscellaneous Provisions Act. And also section 5S of the Civil Liability Act, where it says it can be up to 100%. Up to 100%. So if it's 100%, 
They get nothing. Almost equivalent to a complete defense, like the one that we just mentioned. Exactly. But I think it was mentioned also in the paper that I talked about earlier. The court is not going to be as willing to give a 100% reduction because if the thing can pass the test of scope of liability and then they find out that the damage is sufficiently close to the uh, act that's causing the damage, then normally it's going to be some fault on behalf of the defendant. I mean, it's not likely that the plaintiff is going to get nothing at all. I think practically speaking, it doesn't really have lots of meaning to it. So speaking of, you know, the Law Reformist and Leanest Provisions Act, CLA, maybe some other relevant provisions? Well, as we said, the test in Caterson was about taking reasonable care for one's own safety, and that's exactly what the Civil Liability Act now talks about, so that's the law that currently applies if we look to Section 5R, uh, and that's on the basis of what the person knew or ought to have known at the time of the incident, so that provides a bit more scope for some subjective analysis there. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of other provisions as well. For example, Section 5T talks about the interaction with the Compensation to Relatives Act and how while previously under the, under the legislation you couldn't look at contributory negligence if the person died in that act, now you can look at that for the purposes of compensation to relatives. And you can also look at it in terms of pure mental harm cases, and that's Section 30 of the CLA. It's worth pointing out that it's usually easier to prove defendant's negligence because the defendant is supposed to take care of other people. And for the plaintiff, it's usually just, you know, he or she has responsibility to take care of him or herself. All right, that should be it. What happens when there's an unlawful act involved, when the plaintiff is involved in doing something that's unlawful? So this is a bit of an interesting defense because it's not strictly a defense. It actually affects whether there was a duty of care owed from the defendant to the plaintiff. And it depends. It depends whether the plaintiff and the defendant were both engaged in an illegal act. It depends whether it was just the plaintiff who was engaging in an illegal act. And then it also depends on the nature of the illegal act in question because the statute jumps in there and can make it difficult to raise that as a pseudo-defence. Well, I'm thinking about the case of Miller and Miller. Do we want to talk about it? So Miller and Miller was one of the cases that fell into one of the categories that Maxine mentioned where both the plaintiff and the defendant were engaged in the criminal act. And what that means is that it would be inconsistent for the law to recognise that someone owed a duty of care to another person if they're both engaging in a criminal act together. In the Miller and Miller case, we had the appellant steal a car, he picked up the respondent, and then the respondent took over driving and began uh, driving quite dangerously. And at that point, the appellant asks to be let out of the car, but the respondent just laughs at him, uh, as you do. And that obviously led to an accident and some serious pers personal injuries for the appellant. And it was said that in a normal circumstance, the appellant wouldn't have been able to claim because they were both engaged in the criminal conduct together. Mm. But in this particular case, and this creates a further point of law, because the appellant actually tried to be let out of the car, he had withdrawn from the criminal enterprise. And in that case, as soon as he withdrew from the enterprise, the duty was created, and so he could claim damages. That's right. <laughs> Are you OK with the voice? Yeah, it's, it's all right. <laughs> Alright, with the case that you just mentioned, Miller and Miller, there was some reference to policy considerations and potentially, I think, the phrase was consistency of the law. So what does that really say? So, as a sort of baseline policy consideration, if you think about the criminal law and you're doing something that's illegal, but then you also think about tort law in relation to a duty of care to avoid a foreseeable risk of harm, it can seem quite weird. 
That's right. No, I had it, but good. I lost it. <coughs> I can see where you're going. Yeah, like... An example that you could give would perhaps be, um, you. it would be unfair to create this duty because, say, one person could then decide with another person, oh, I'm going to commit a crime against you, and then you'll be able to claim money for it. So it'd be almost a way for people to cooperate in terms, uh, so that they can get money out of, yeah. out of each other. To recognise a duty of care in here, with a concurrent duty of care between... Wait, how do you formulate this? It's tricky. Yeah. Very good. It's, it's not just... <coughs> they had a really good quote in Miller mm. and Miller. What's the quote? <laughs> I've got my Facebook. I'll, I can grab it. <laughs> yeah, 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 do it. <laughs> I think it also has something to do with the fact that if you're in a joint criminal enterprise, you've created that situation as well, so you can't then claim a duty of care when you're responsible for the dangerousness. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It's much simpler than what we were trying to say before. <laughs> yeah. Then it says it better than the judgment. Would it be incongruous for the law to prescribe the plaintiff's conduct and yet allow recovery and negligence for damage suffered in the course of that unlawful conduct, mm. essentially? Yeah. Great. Miller, Miller, that's the only case that we got where you have co-offenders together, right? Mm. Yeah. The other case was... I remember the facts, but not the name, but it's about a boy who was like on the train. Henwood? Henwood. Yeah. Can you talk about the case for us? Sure. So in Henwood, there were parents mm. and a kid on a tram, and the kid, whilst the tram was moving, didn't feel too well. Uh, so he leant his head out the side of the window of the tram uh, to essentially throw up. Whilst doing so, he was struck by a metal pole that was really close I to the tram. I think there were two. He was struck by two. Yeah, two metal two metal poles, and the issue was whether the tram company was under, or the company responsible for operating the trams, was under a duty of care to provide, uh, I guess, more secure barriers outside the windows of the tram mm -hmm. uh, to avoid the injury that happened to the boy, and actually, in fact, he died. And the court in that case, when they considered the issue of contributory negligence, said that if the immediate cause of injury is the plaintiff's unlawful act, he can't recover. Right. But if there are other conditions surrounding that injury relating to the negligence of the defendant, then you can recover. And then it won't be a blanket. The plaintiff's conduct was the sole cause of the injury. What do you guys think about that? I think it's fair enough that you don't have one sort of large point of law excluding all these instances. Um, and an interesting qualification that was made, as Maxine touched on, is that if you look at the, the law that has the the criminal offence within it and it can be analysed in a way that makes it seem like the law intended that there wouldn't be any civil responsibility, like that the law would preclude a claim if these offences were committed, right. then you wouldn't be able to bring a claim. And so it, I think it strikes a good balance um, and it, it makes sure that, uh, for example, if you look at this case of tram companies, it would make sure that tram companies can't just completely you know, neglect to take care of their customers because they put in place all these laws. So it ensures that sort of the powerful actors in society can't just get away with things by making offences. Yeah, I think the, the law that you were talking about is called bylaw yeah. because it's, a, um, it's not actual legislation. Yeah. It's just what the traffic company did as a way to prevent, I guess, people who got hurt because of their own fault. Last one. Um, let me just check. Yep, it's about self-defense and apparently getting drunk. Self-defense, 
Yeah, we talked about this in one of our previous episodes. The key point that you guys should be aware of is that the self-defense response should be proportionate to the threat that was being presented. And that's from the case of Fontaine and Catapodis. Also, the act that the person is responding must be unlawful so that the response could be sort of justified. But as for intoxication, what's the general rule regarding this area? So intoxication is again covered by the Civil Liability Act, uh, sections 48 through to 50. 49 is the key provision and it's that when you look at whether a duty of care exists, intoxication isn't relevant and intoxication also doesn't increase or affect the standard of care that one is owed. Of course there are certain qualifications and more specifics to that within the legislation but generally you don't consider intoxication when you're looking at negligence. So you try to like strip away or like peel away the effect of intoxication when you consider the offence. And even the possibility or likelihood that the plaintiff might be intoxicated mm. is irrelevant and that in that case where the plaintiff is intoxicated at the time of injury, it's their job to show that the injury would have occurred even without them being intoxicated. Right. So say you had slippery water on a surface and you fell over. You'd have to show that even if you were essentially sober, you still would have tripped. Yeah, well, that, that's, that should be it. Um, do we, did we want to look at the provisions in the Civil Liability Act for self-defence? Yeah, but I think we talked about that in defences to intentional torts, so there's no right. need to actually go over Because well, the only thing is that in the Civil Liability Act, there's that provision, I think Section 3B, where it says that all these, like, these provisions for self-defence and intoxication won't apply for intentional torts. Yeah, that's, uh, Section 3B essentially excludes the liability when the tort was intentional, and when it's negligent, then you have the CLA yep. in full effect. Yeah, so like this, these section 52 and section 48 are meant to be for negligence. Mm. That's great that we covered that. Thank you for the contribution. Alright, uh, that's the end of our episode. Hopefully this is useful to you guys to learn about this topic. Do you guys have anything to say to your listeners? Towards is fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Subject to conditions. <laughs> what about you, Maxine? Is that the only thing you want to say? I'll think, I'll think about it. <laughs> Enjoy it. Enjoy right. it. It's your first law subject. It's your first substantive law subject. Enjoy it. Mm, Have fun with the cases. The cases are a lot more interesting and a lot more fun than some of the other subjects you'll do later. So this is the time to read them thoroughly and enjoy them. Would you recommend doing mooting as part of the process of learning torts? Absolutely. Uh, we both did the torts moot in semester one and that was extremely helpful in our understanding of the subject. Okay, that's great. Alright, I'll pause it here. Ha <laughs> ha